This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a three triple R film criticism show. My name is Thomas Caldwell and I'm joined tonight by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening, folks. Let's do it again. Hi, kids. Hi. Hi. Are we the kids? Uh, We're all kids. Yeah. We're all the kids. We're young at heart. I think by far the worst part of the show are the very awkward introductions that we do. <laughs> we really should. Has anyone picked up on this yet? <laughs> I actually think that's where we peak. It's, it's all downhill from here. That's our very Welcome. zenith. Welcome to the zenith of the show. <laughs> it's all downhill, snowballing from here. Well, before we go downhill, let's thanks let's thank Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of music on Maps. Fee's here every Monday at four PM. She goes right through to seven PM. We always enjoy listening to her extraordinary selection of music as we prepare for our show. Now, tonight we're going to do a couple of films. We're going to discuss a couple of films that currently have a limited season at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. So do check the ACME website to make sure you don't miss out on these films. We're going to be looking at Chevalier, a Greek comedy about male competitiveness, and Winter at Westbeth an Australian-made documentary that profiles three elderly artists who live in the same Manhattan apartment building. But first, a film that's screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. Under the Shadow is a UK, Jordan and Qatar co-production. It's set in Iran, shot in Jordan and directed and written by the UK-based Iran-born filmmaker Babak Anvari. Most of the action takes place in an apartment in Tehran during the 1980s when Iran was at war with Iraq. Under the Shadow is a ghost story in the vein of films such as The Babadook in that it focuses on a young woman and her daughter who are beginning to experience strange occurrences and waking nightmares within the home. They may be imagined or they may be the work of a evil gin. Uh, oh, no. Have you had an evil gin? I've had an evil... I've had too many evil gins and now I can't <laughs> pronounce the words I want to pronounce. Uh, it was very cute, though. It, it was. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to make this mispronunciation thing an endearing part of my whole <laughs> shtick one day. Uh, a jinn is a supernatural creature from Islamic mythology as, as well as elsewhere, of course. Now, look, it might be tempting to compare Under the Shadows to A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night because it's another recent Iran-set horror film that's enjoyed a global audience. But, look, this is much closer, in my opinion anyway, it's much closer thematically to films like The Devil's Background, The Devil's Backbone, <laughs> and The Devil's Backbone, and closer stylistically to Japanese horror films such as Dark Water. The role of women in Iranian society is a major theme and influences key plot points, and the context of the Iran-Iraq war looms large. Now, Alex, uh, as well as mispronouncing a bunch of words there, I'm, I'm guessing already there's a few things I may have said that you would we, you, you would potentially question. Not at all. I think Come we're quite excited him, because it's, it's one of the one of the first few times I think that we've really passionately <laughs> agreed on, on a horror I think film. This is, the first con- this is the first contemporary horror film you and I have agreed on. You, you being very much an expert and enthusiast. And I'm also me a being sourpuss, a casual though. Fan. I'm a sourpuss. Yeah, true. You have a lot of love to give me, not so much. I tend to like everything. I I'm, I'm just a, I'm <laughs> a bit... I, I, I have high standards. I don't know. I'm just a sourpuss. But I, I love this film and I was so curious to know what you would Yeah, look, I, I, I mean... Full stop. I think this is a really solid horror film. Like Great. regardless of where it's from, what the cultural context is, what the historical context is, I think this is just a really strong horror film. I found it 
fascinating in so many ways and interesting in so many ways. I think... Um, I mean, a lot of reviews are talking about A Girl Walks Home Alone um, for obvious reasons. I think there's something really interesting about diaspora filmmaking, you know, people making films, um, people of that kind of Iranian heritage making films about Iran, not from, you know what I mean, who've moved somewhere else. I think... Films that you couldn't actually make with Yeah, no, that's exactly it. So I I believe that uh, Anna Lily Amapur, she made that in Kentucky, I think. Yeah, she's US-based. Yeah, she's in LA, and I think the film was filmed in Kentucky, but it was set in Iran. And I I find you get the kind of similar, you know, that that expat thing going on here, and I think it's really fascinating um, and very contemporary, you know, with, you know, mother-flipping transnational flows and stuff like that. But, yeah, this idea, you know, people being able to... people moving out of their home and looking back at the culture that they come from but they're disconnected to in a certain way and kind of teasing out that relationship through genre film I think is just fascinating. There's so much going on in that on that angle. I mean, it, this film reminded me a lot. Um, probably one of my favourite books on horror is by a guy called Adam Lowenstein who wrote a book called Shocking Representation in 2005. And he has this amazing line. He does a bunch of stuff on trauma theory and horror film. And uh, he's, he's a great writer. But he has a wonderful line in that, that horror is a return to history through the gut. And I've, I'm just going to get that. I'm going to grow more hands and just get all of that on knuckle tats. I just think it's wonderful. So he talks about films like Eyes Without a Face <laughs> by Georges Franju yep. and uh, Return of the Living Dead. And he, he basically argues that horror is a way to talk about trauma in ways that we struggle to articulate more directly and that, that, that horror has an an allegorical potency unlike anything else because it's dealing with bodies in crisis in a very specific way. And for me, this film is very much that. I think Under the Shadow, just the title of this film alone, it's not just Under the Shadow in that, oh, it's spooky, but it's Under the Shadow of, you know, the 1979 revolution. Yeah. It's Under the Shadow of the Iran-Iraq War. Um, the, the relationship, I think, you know, I mean, I found it really fascinating seeing the protagonist of this film, Ashide. Uh, we see her outside of the home in a very formal environment um, in very traditional dress. And then we see her at home in jeans and a T-shirt working out to Jane Fonda workout videos. This is an 80s set film. So that, you know, this, I mean, under the, the idea of being under is extraordinarily, I just think this is such an intelligent film. Just before we let Cerise mm. jump in, I mean, th- that concept of horror being a, a great genre to reflect cultural anxieties and concerns, that's really beautifully articulated, actually, yeah. how you just express that then, quoting it, that author. But, I, th- I mean, that, that's a fairly accepted oh, absolutely. argument, isn't it? And it I think, is. I think you can say the same for the science fiction film as well. Um, but we definitely see that really front and centre with this film. Yeah, and I think that when you're, when you're talking about national trauma specifically... Um, you know, things like the Vietnam War, the American Civil Rights Movement, things like that. Um, I think that this this is a film that fits right into that. It just slots into that trajectory. Well, it's talking about trauma, uh, a traumatic time in the the life of uh, Iranian people during the war and very soon after the Islamic Revolution of 79. But the the issues that are oppressing her are issues that are still very much omnipresent in uh, Iran today. So while it does have that historical register that this film is is, um, keyed to, it is also very much about what what women are subjected to today, that the modesty police are still a, a force that will persecute and prosecute women who dare to go out into the world not dressed uh, well, as, as the authorities deem appropriately, which is to say with a great deal of coverage. And um, 
I, I think that's where this film is particularly intelligent. It can situate itself in, in that historical, historical dimension, but it's very much about the everyday as well. And then, of course, you've got the, something truly timeless thrown in there, which is this mythological, folkloric uh, aspect where this um, nebulous, uh, malevolent force is... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> malevolent. Is, malevolent is... Um, is a constant threat mm. is it real is it not this is something that um the babadook played with heavily mm. here too which is a bit of its sort of own homegrown instant mythology but it somehow taps into the same timeless transnational anxiety about supernatural goings on and things that even we with rational minds and we're clearly told that the woman here is somebody who who would be a, a doctor and, and is someone who thinks rationally but even still she starts to entertain those doubts more and more and of course with time we start to wonder whether this is a, in fact a film about mental health as much as anything in this weather the like whole, the babadook like as well. the babadook and like and the, the noonday Day witch the czech film that i opened the czech slovak film festival amazing with film. recently too so they're, they're all tapping into some very similar anxieties um about the place of women in this world and and the responsibilities heaped upon them by a basically unfair world no matter which society you're in western or islamic yeah what I really liked about the way they use this concept in this film is is just how much they drew attention to the damage done to women and I suppose the collective female psyche by these restrictive uh, uh, laws and attitudes. I mean, the, the women in this film are robbed of their agencies to be independent people and they're made to question their worth as, as people, as wives, as, as mothers, as, as, you know, valuable people to contribute to society. I mean, th th this character is... She, she's no longer allowed to study. She's no longer... And, and she's forced to question whether that's what she wanted to do, whether she could have been a doctor like she aspired to be. She has to... Very, with a lot of just... Well, not maybe not justifiable, but understandable bitterness towards her husband, who is, who is a doctor, and and she's constantly being undermined about her her worth and her value. And I think that is tying that then into her anxiety that there is this creature in the home that might do damage to her daughter, or even worse, her daughter might prefer to be with than her, is, is really potent. And so I think that horror allegory works in a very effective way here. And on a more sort of trivial note. I love the fact that this film has an amazing reason for why I can't leave the haunted space. Mm -hmm. Often in haunted house films, that's one of the real sticking points, isn't it? Like, why don't they just, just get leave? Just get out and go. <laughs> this film provides an explanation for why they just can't get out that's really quite powerful, profound. It's shocking. There's one, it's just, it's, it makes you furious. I mean, there is a, the most extraordinary sequence of mansplaining, I suppose, in this scene, although it's very deadly mansplaining because the mansplaining could do her great harm if he wanted to. And you just feel this sense of of rage, and um, yeah, it's the subjectivity I think that carries this film, both both on the mother and the daughter's part. And I think that's one of the interesting things about films like this and Babadook and Noonday Witch. And I think that they're the three really current films that really tap into this similar dynamic with mothers and mothers in crisis with children, uh, with troubled children. Um, I mean, the the adult actors, of course, carry the films, but I think we can't underestimate the performances of the kids across these movies. The little girl in this, uh, who plays Dorsa Avin Manshadi, I believe her name is. My apologies if I mispronounce that. I almost didn't realise how great her performance was because I, I forgot she was acting. She was so solid and she's a young child. She's a very little person. And she's just brilliant. She's like, I want my goddamn doll. Where's my doll? Like, I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't an exact quote. <laughs> um, 
really, I mean, I, I find these films really, really interesting. And what I think, these examples that we keep giving uh, this kind of trifecta, I guess, of um, Under the Shadow, Noonday Witch and Babadook, is that they all come from really different cultural contexts, so is stating the obvious. So we have a Czech film, an Australian film, and uh, an Iranian set film made by an Iranian filmmaker, even though he lives in the UK. And I, f- I find it really extraordinary because I think that these are very different films in lots of ways, but quite similar in that in that setup. But when we look back at something, Thomas, you mentioned um, Hideo Nakata's uh, Dark, yeah, Water. Dark Water. And I find it really fascinating because the way for that to enter a Western market was through a remake. I mean, it had a kind of cult film reputation, but then, of course, it was remade. What I find really fascinating is that these films now aren't getting remade. They're, they're, there's something about them that isn't getting lost in translation that perhaps then once was a fear that it was or that maybe these kind of parent, you know, mother-child horror films were specifically a kind of American terrain i don't know i'm thinking a lot um i mean i guess the exorcist is a really obvious example but for me a more potent one or specific one would be something like cujo from 1983 um i'm just really fascinated by the kind of intercultural dynamics of this particular i mean it's not even a genre or a subgenre it's like a setup you know this kind of trope or dynamic i just find it really intriguing well, it's, sort of mothers and children it's moved from a general child anxiety kind of idea which i think is a lot more of a general concept you know mm-hmm. the child yep. is the ultimate symbol of innocence yep. i suppose and that's so terrifying to think something could happen to the child but it's increasingly become more specific to how the child relates to the mother and how the mother is is un- being undermined by the supernatural force um, undermined in the sense that she doubts her own yep. ability to, to, to be a human. They're not collapsing into evil children films either, which I think yes. is historically the kind of traditional way that these would tend to go. Um, there's much more complexity and sophistication. You know, we might have a taste for, you know, I prefer the Babadook over Under the Shadow or the other way around. You know, we, in terms of taste, I think we would all probably be leaning in certain directions. But I just find that when you look at them collectively, they're really fascinating yeah. in their well, unified complexity yeah they are and they're all playing with that tension between subjectivity and objectivity and and whether anyone's uh version of events is reliable whether any any part of the narrative is reliable that's in all of these films it's collapsing at some point and we don't know whether the child is being uh say possessed or under the influence of something we don't know if the mother is we don't know if the entire environment is is somehow being uh turned against the, the family unit it's uh it's complex it's political um, like i mean not, is- not just in terms of the historical framework but there's like a politics of female hysteria here i think it's fascinating and the editing of this film i think is superb it really makes you doubt a lot of the time whether we are seeing a waking nightmare or what's really happening to them as the film progresses you're increasingly unsure there, there are sort of dream sequences in that traditional sense where the character wakes up towards the start but as the film progresses we don't know what space we're in sort of all collapses in together uh as well as everything we, we, we've spoken about i just did find this a, a genuinely creepy scary film it, there were there were no uh what do you, jump fright jump scares oh thank god um yeah. <laughs> th- but there was lots of sort of stuff out of the corner of your eye kind of moments um, i was in an s- audience today of some yeah. older folks and i can assure you some of them jumped yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know what i mean the, the the traditional jump scare where something just flashes at you on yeah. the screen to pro- to provoke a response but this was there's a scene of stairwell where we just see something going to the apartment very quickly and i did not see that sequence coming and it really gave me a wonderful chill it's a really solid horror film this, and ultimately yeah. even if the politics i wasn't as sophisticated as i really think it is on, yes. on a num- like you know historical sense and gender politics and stuff you put all that aside it's just a really great popcorn movie and there's scary toast <laughs> 
Isn't that the tagline? <laughs> scary toast. Plato's cave. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. 2016 is turning into a rough year in terms of losing some very significant names from the entertainment industry and quite specifically the film industry. We all, only a few hours ago, just received notice of a very important figure who has recently died. Um, out of respect to him, I'm going to let Cerise talk about him because, Cerise, you can pronounce his name a whole lot better than I can. Sure. Yeah, um, Andrzej Wajda. Uh, we covered at least one of his films during that Polish Masterpieces season at Acme sometime. Maybe we even... did that almost exactly two years ago. Yeah. yeah uh, special on the Polish Diamonds. films. Yes, yep. which was from about 19, mid to late 1950s. This is someone whose career... Um, well, you could, some might say it peaked back then, but that would be a tr- terrible underestimation of what followed. In fact, his, his career is an, an extraordinary one, and he's, he'd only just finished, uh, I think at the age of 90, uh, his latest film, which is already Poland's entry into the foreign language category for next year's Oscars, a film named After Image. And in recent years, he'd made still some very strong stuff. Uh, Katyn, um, another film exploring the Holocaust uh, from the Polish perspective and atrocities committed in the woods. I've seen that. That's an incredible film. Yeah, yeah. And just four years ago, he did a pretty solid film about Lech Walesa. He'd, he'd already had a lot of uh, very personal involvement with the Solidarity Movement in Poland back in the day, and he made a nice little biopic about Walesa, uh, the leader of that movement, uh, just about four or so years ago. I'm very intrigued to see what film, uh, what, what his last film will be like, because I, I don't really know how, how much, what sort of intimations he had of his mortality whilst making it. People's last films are often fascinating because mm-hmm. invariably you project all sorts of that sort of concern onto them. But, yeah, a, a, an extraordinary filmmaker, and there are, there's just many masterpieces from the 50s onwards, and I'd also mention Man of Iron as another must-see for folks out there. He's one of those directors that I... I realised today I need to know a lot more about. I mean, my knowledge is very much the War Trilogy. So uh, Ashes and Diamonds, Canal and A Generation, which mm-hmm. I believe Polanski acts in. Yes. Um, I mean, Polish Polish cinema, I, I didn't realise that, that he was still alive, that Wajda was still alive until uh, Andrzej Zolowski died at the start of the year. And I, and I think he started off as a, an assistant director. One of his early connection. jobs was as a yeah. sort of protege. Um, and there was quite, you know, there was a lot of people saying, well, you know... Um, Zolowski didn't live as long, you know, he, he didn't live as long as his, you know, mentor. Yeah. Um, and speaking of last films, I, you know, when you were talking about that, I was thinking of Cosmos that just played at MIFF, uh, which of course was Zolowski's last film. And it's so difficult to watch that film knowing that it was the last one and knowing that he knew that it was the last one. I mean, the very last line of that film was, um, that's all there is left to say. Hmm. Well, I've I, heard that Vida... I cried for 500 yeah. days. Oh. Hmm. I've heard that Vida actually had another project planned. I think he possibly saw himself as another Manuel de Oliveira going to just keep making films <laughs> after he'd hit a centenary. But, yeah, it's still, it's still a sad loss. And uh, Look, yeah. it is. And, I'm, I mean, keep, keep, we'll all keep our eyes out for After Image. I mean, there's been no discussion yet about where or when or how it will screen in Australia, but hopefully sometime next year, at least at a festival, it might pop up. But, but look, do, do listen to the Plato's Cave. Almost two years ago, we did a whole show on uh, the Polish masters that were screening at Acme. It was Martin, a Martin Scorsese-curated program, and Cerise was you, myself, Josh Nelson, and Tara Judah. And I think Josh, Tara, and I, at least, had never seen Ashes and Diamonds before. It's an amazing and film. we just all had our minds blown. I mean, it's one of the all-time 
great films, full stop, masterpiece. Yeah, one of the all-time greats on screen as well, the great uh, Zbigniew Zabilski, the Polish James Dean, as he was often <laughs> known. Yeah, for good yeah. reason. Yeah, for very good reason. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, sad. Three, triple, ah. Chevalier is a new Greek film directed by filmmaker Athena Rachel Sangari, whose previous credits include directing the 2010 film Attenberg and producing some of the earlier films by the lobster director Yorgos Lanthimos, including his 2007 film Dogtooth. Chevalier is a deadpan comedy and a social satire about six men on a fishing trip who begin to compete with each other to find out who among them is the best in general. This involves not only challenging each other to various tasks that they all score each other on, but also taking notes on every aspect of each other's daily lives and behaviour. As the film progresses, we find out more and more about how the various men know each other, their professions, backgrounds, and, of course, anxiety anxieties. Uh, there's more to it than obvious jokes about dick size, uh, but a detail I did particularly enjoy is that the character worried about his ability to get an erection is also the character who likes jet skis. <laughs> That's a very, very specific <laughs> observation. I was so excited when I realised that the guy who can't get it up isn't a jet skiing because I think that's, that's a very wise observation by the filmmaker. To sort of validates your suspicions, your, your own biases. Oh, jet skiers are dickheads, aren't they? Obnoxious things. <laughs> I know anybody. <laughs> Sorry. What? And now Thomas Holden will rant about jet skis for an hour. <laughs> Series, so we touched on this um, very briefly in one of our myth shows. I the think jet was, skis. I don't think. <laughs> I think I've, uh, I've brought that to the conversation. Previous jet ski conversations yeah. <laughs> we've had. We talked about Chevalier uh, when we had Christos Chokas on the show with us. Yes, when um, we say we, we mean you and Christos. I was going to say seen I couldn't remember if you'd seen stage. it or not I because I, I've already given air to my love of this film, mm. um, which I'm very happy to repeat in a moment. But I would love to hear your thoughts. Oh look, I, I got a, a real kick out of this as well. It's a hoot. Um, Yes, it is that very much a deadpan uh, satire. But it's for this uh, so-called weird way that, that this tag that's been given this sudden spate of peculiar comedies from Greek filmmakers. Uh, this film's not actually that weird. There's nothing in it that's utterly inexplicable or arbitrary. It's a very considered film. Nothing in it seems really that uh, uh, like it doesn't belong. There's a very solid logic to this universe. It seems very real. It's very contemporary. These seem like um, quite believable middle-aged men of uh, all of a certain accomplishment in society in a mainstream sort of way. They're, they're all bourgeois they're middle class, and, yeah, aren't they? They're yeah. very much so. Yep. Um, but they're all just, uh, as, as, as the film slowly teases out, they're all just full of neuroses and... Um, and this, this whole business of male competitiveness is, is teased out in a way that I think is really quite ingenious because there are so many films out there about men battling other men, whether it's on the theatre of war or it's on the sports mm -hmm. field of some sort. But here it's just gently goading one another constantly and, and being petty about observations about one another's weaknesses, whether it's balding slightly or... Building or, Ikea furniture. Yeah, <laughs> or, or just not <laughs> sleeping in a way that's just particularly aesthetically pleasing. Or having or, a naff ringtone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah, and then being suspicious of the motivations for keeping that particular ringtone. I mean, it's just... 
somehow it's quite believable that when people really start to needle one another, they do get this petty. I, I really think this film is very smart and not actually all that weird, but it's very, very funny. Uh, the weirdest moment is this wonderful little <laughs> song. I really can't, don't want to talk about too much, but there is just one moment where the film just has a different energy to the, to the rest of it. It's still in keeping with the film's thematics, and, and it doesn't seem like too absurd a leap either, but when it does go there, it gave me a, a real kick. And I know you both know what I'm talking about, that particular scene, and it doesn't involve jet skis. I hasten to add. <laughs> I, I love this film as well, and I would agree with what you just said there, Cerise, that it's... I mean, there's this whole talk about this new wave of Greek films being all very absurd and, and, and weird, and, and, and I suppose some of the films that we mentioned in the introduction kind of do fit along those lines but what really struck me about this film is how unweird a lot of it felt it maybe was an ever so slight exaggeration of normal behavior but it, it didn't feel that alien or removed from how i think a group of men like this might actually interact and there are moments in this film where i could see aspects of my own interaction when i've been with a group of other guys for a long time or when i've witnessed it as well and because they're, they're sort of all, all middle class well educated reasonably affluent it's a very polite competitiveness so that the, the passive aggressive dialogue in this film is gorgeous um so all all this kind of very very male competitive behavior i found instantly recognizable and i don't think any of it was too exaggerated to the point of being unbelievable. I mean, they could have gone for so many really easy laughs. And, you, you know, you mentioned the, the, the war film, the sports film. I even think of all the broad comedies where, where men sort of have to prove their masculinity to each other to, to, to win the girl. You know, that, that's, that's sort of a staple of a lot of American comedy. Yeah, nothing like this. And, and yet I laughed out loud many, many times in this film, um, partly because it was genuinely f- funny and otherwise it was just so delightful. And I think the key to what makes this so works so well is i think it's a very kind film i don't think it's necessarily okay yeah i don't think it's necessarily mocking or ridiculing men maybe it's holding up a mirror in a gentle kind of checky behavior type way she's trolling men children yeah but but not in a nasty way affectionate like i still liked all these guys to various degrees there was no one in this film who i disliked although i sniggered at the bad behavior at times i I think this is a i think that's the key it's a very critical film and ultimately it's very kind what i love about this film i mean i I love a lot about it but there's a particular uh actor in this film who's also in a film called suntan that played at miff this year which is one of my films of the year i'm Conflicted, which one of these films I liked the most, and they both star the same uh, star the same guy, a guy called Marcus Papa Dimitriou, uh, who played Dimitri in this film, the the brother, the younger brother. Oh, he's a gorgeous. And actor. I love. I think he's. I mean, it's hard to pick one character in this film that that is the the best in general. But I love Dimitri because, and I, this is absolutely not a spoiler. It's it's a big question in this film: who's going to win? It's never a question who's going to lose. It makes it very, very clear, I think, from the outset who the loser is. He, and he's it the deals one character with this, like, not alpha, isn't he? And, I, yeah. and I, I think that he makes the film in a way. I think that he's yep. such an important aspect of this film because he knows as well and he just kind of opts out quite happily and quite comfortably because he's obviously lived his life with his older, his older brother, Yanis. Uh, is his older brother Yanis? Yes. Um, who's just a mean bully. Like, But, you know, all of these men are kind of, you know, who's going to win, who's going to win. And, and Dimitri is just like, well, it's not going to be me. And, and he kind of rolls with that. And it just gives it this really delightful energy. And, and where he ends up, I think that he plays a really crucial moment in the climactic scene of this film that 
that for me is unparalleled in any other movie this year. He is kind of the soul of the film, and the other observation I, I really, I, I um, which my partner made when we were watching it together, is he's also um, the character who'll stick up for other characters. So when everyone, when the pack mentality begins, and they all take turns ganging up on each other for really trivial things. He's the one who will often step in and defend the person being picked on. Mm-hmm. Really gorgeous character. I think he's fantastic and really important, and just this lovely love he has for for rounded pebbles and he you know that the game that he's playing isn't the same game that the other guys are playing and he's not the he's not the central figure it's not like we see this this competition through his eyes in any particular way and i like that the film doesn't really give us one single character that who we align ourselves with um in terms of audience connection um we're almost quite objective onlookers to to the games. Well, that's so that the, yeah, the film can enjoy playing games with us as oh, well yeah, as, as various <laughs> characters try to forge sort of allegiances with one another, and that all gets very uncomfortable. I, I, there is some of that comedy of discomfort in this film. Just I, I found myself um, just <laughs> retreating into my seat once or twice, oh, really? just feeling okay. yeah, just <laughs> finding it all a bit cringeworthy, but very funny. <laughs> it, it never made me really uh, sort of. Uh, original series of The Office level of uh, discomfort. You know, not, you know, that used to make me retreat into my couch, into the corner, and wish to bury myself in yeah. cushions and other forms of comforting, uh, other comforting embraces. It's just, yeah. But this is still, um, I found some of it a little excruciating, <laughs> but very funny. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm just trying to think. That, I mean, th- there were moments where the. That there's sort of the, the, this veneer of manners, yeah, mannered behaviour that every now and then breaks down and the characters lose control and say what they really think of each other. And I suppose they are quite awkward, embarrassing moments because it's, it's characters who are trying to present this veneer of respectability the whole time to get the good points. <laughs> and then something happens and then they snap. And, I mean, the, the, the lovely detail in the film is when these two characters do break down and really show their true emotions, the other characters there silently taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she directs the hell out of this. Yeah. And She's it's also really... And there's sort of like a secondary characters in the film as well who are observing this, who then get drawn into it as well. I think that that's a nice buffer between them and us in the audience as well. Almost infected by the game. Yeah. It's really... uh, Yeah, where this film goes I think is quite interesting. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. I I, I think um, it's one of the smartest observations of... Uh, a very recognisable masculinity that I've seen in cinema for a very, very long time. Because we often get extremes, yep. you know, like the sport film or the war film. This, this is middle, middle class, middle age men behaving in a way I found very, very recognisable. Yeah, so much pathos. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a bit of pathos also. <laughs> Three. Triple. Winter at Westbeth is the new feature documentary by Melbourne filmmaker Rowan Spong, whose previous film was All the Way Through Evening, which, uh, like this new film, is a New York story about an artistic community. In fact, the main subject of All the Way Through Evening, Mimi Sternwolf, makes an appearance in Winter at Westbeth. So this new film is about the ageing community at uh, a New York housing project that was set up in the 1970s for the artistic and creative types living in and around Manhattan. Uh, Over one year, the film follows Edith Stephen, once a contemporary dancer who now makes films, 
Dudley Williams, another dancer who is now something of a recluse, and Isla Gilbert, a writer and poet. Cross-cutting between all three stories, Spong creates portraits of their lives, their careers, and the various ways they all look back at the past and contemplate what will come next. Now, should we as a disclaimer say that, Cerise, you and I at least know Rowan reasonably well and we like him very well, we're much? We're very fond of Rowan, yeah. <laughs> How could we not So be? we should put that disclaimer out there. Um, and actually, I'll tell you someone who knows Rowan very well is our... Um, recently ex Platters Cave member Josh Nelson, who was a, a very good colleague and, and fr- still is a colleague and friend of Rowan's. And in fact, in the closing credits of this film, if you look closely, you see a thank you. Oh, warm fuzzies. Especially for Josh. But I'm, I'm just saying this to, what's the word? Just so no one accuses us of favouritism. Spirit of transparency. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Transparency. Well, it's worth pointing out. Um, I think that it's, it's a good thing to kind of point this out, but it also put a little bit of pressure on me because I know that you guys know him and I, I had this sort of secret little nervousness watching it it's like <laughs> what if i hate this film like, i think it's safe to say if we hated the film we probably wouldn't be covering that's it. probably yeah. true look i i mean i i don't know this um this rowan this alleged <laughs> uh, i'm sure you're very nice rowan i don't mean to <laughs> speak of you like this <laughs> now it's getting weird can we talk about jet skiers again uh, rowan I, would never jet ski i'm pretty sure <laughs> of that. the fact. ultimate coldwell compliment yeah. enough said i loved this film i just loved it um it I love the look of it. The first, the first couple of minutes, it looks like old Polaroids. It looks the, the color palette in this film is just gorgeous. Um, these sort of high—they're kind of like highly saturated pastels, almost. The, the the color palette. There's just such a beautiful look to this film um, that just instantly made me kind of connect to to what was happening even before I really kind of got to know the characters, these three, not characters, these three amazing human beings, these three remarkable human beings. And I think that the film very much wears its heart on its sleeve. It doesn't, um, there's never a feeling other than pure, real real affection for these people and their stories. Um, and I love that that is told as much through the detail and the nuance and the imagery that we get through these people. There's one great moment where Gilbert, oh, sorry, no, Edith Stevens, I believe, is... Um, I can't remember which 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 of the women, but one of them is sitting on her bed reading the Kama Sutra, and there's a walking frame next to the bed, and it's just this little flash, just this beautiful little image. It's just very casually shown, and it's just everything you need to know about this woman in this one image. It's fantastic. I think there's a, a really wonderful strategy adopted at the very outset, which immediately inspires confidence in the film that's only just beginning, which is a. Um, we see a, a woman who somehow immediately grasped is going to be a player in this story and she's delivering a voiceover or, or rec- doing some recording and we already sense a rapport between the filmmaker and this person, that there's a conversation already underway and that we, we sense there's a, that, that one of them is the other's confidant in a way already. There's already this dynamic that's going to be very positive and will draw out good things of um, of some probably going to be very interesting people and of course in due course uh, their stories are uh, you know, details emerge like that which speak volumes but also we do learn particulars about uh, their careers and um, which have in, in the case particularly of Dudley Williams attained some quite extraordinary heights he was by all accounts a very well known revered dancer who came from um, uh, tutelage under now what was her name extraordinarily Martha famous. Graham uh, yes Martha mm-hmm. Graham and 
Yes, and, but who has in latter years become a recluse within this extraordinary building, which as soon as it was described and the purpose it was built for and... Um, or rather, the purpose that especially was adopted for it in the was it the seventies? Nineteen seventy, I believe. I mean, I I just uh, was suffering fits of envy, thinking, oh, <laughs> to live in such a place, uh, an artist's refuge, but a glorious refuge. Even if there aren't elevators that work, who needs them? <laughs> just to be in that environment, just um, my my mind was working overtime, imagining all of the uh, what I believe the kids these days call synergies <laughs> between all of the. Uh, <laughs> All of the artists in this community. It's just uh, idyllic. I think at one point they... One of the people in the documentary refers to it as a, a naturally occurring retirement community or something like that. I love that so That's much. That's how it became eventually. Yeah, yeah that the, yeah. these people just... They all they moved there and nobody left. They, it, just, they just stayed there and they all kind of got old It reminded together. me of something from our, an, an Armistead Melbourne novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wrote about San Francisco. Yes. But the, the, this yep. is the kind of fictionalised places he wrote about and he was the real thing. Look, I, I've seen all of Rowan's feature films, and I, I met him quite independently of, of knowing Josh Nelson. When I used to be on a, a different radio station, I interviewed him for his feature his feature debut film, Tease for Teacher, a really stunning portrait of four transgender teachers in America who talked about the transition and what, how that affected them in the classroom and in the community. And, and the thing that immediately struck me about this film is Rowan has... A beautiful rapport with his his subjects. Now, some people may feel that documentary filmmaking is meant to be detached and objective. I'll always argue against that. that that's a news report. Documentary filmmaking is different. It takes very different modes. And ever since then, um, he's mainly explored the arts in in, in among different different communities and, and, and interesting people. And his films are deeply, deeply humanistic. Um, they're often films about people who have come from a lot of hardship earlier in their lives who have come to some kind of peace through through artistic practice and um, I mean his last film was about um, a, a concert for for a lot of AIDS survivors and sort of a dedication to people who had, who had been lost in you know the, the AIDS crisis in, in the 80s and in, in the 90s um, and that humanity is something that's quite rare to I think project on cinema in a way that doesn't feel a little bit twee or saccharine sometimes but it's so it's so genuine and he really gets to know these people and you see them opening up to him and you see them trusting him and they're such amazing characters i mean the the two women in this film are very verbose they have amazing insights um really fascinating perspectives on the world and it's through one of these i I, from watching the film i understand it that it was through the conversation with one of these women that he discovered you know this other guy lived here uh what's his name dudley dudley williams dudley williams who yeah who had shut himself off from the world despite having this remarkable career and and his opening up on the screen that we see during this film and i'm going to choke up talking about it is is truly profound and and very very beautiful it's um it's a hell of a thing rowan achieves he's a filmmaker and again I, i you know, I'm worried that I, I sort of do kind of know him and I like him as a person, but I think he's, he's a filmmaker who deserves a lot more recognition in this country and his films should be screening wider than, than they are now. Look, I, I don't know him at all and I'm really comfortable saying this film absolutely blew me away. Yeah. I mean, I, I these three subjects uh, that this documentary covers, each in their own right, is worthy of their own film. I mean, these are extraordinary people, but the way that he brings their stories together, this idea of community is so vital then that they're not standalone stories. Mm. And and we find that in the last minute and a half of this film, um, that the impact of which has gone unparalleled. <laughs> yeah. 
in my ear and I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. But this is also not just a, an emotionally beautiful film. I think it's a, a visually, a formally really beautiful film. The textures, you know, things like um, chipped nail polish, you know, these tiny little details are just exquisite. This I would love to see in a double. I, I wouldn't do anything as... Um, Lazy is suggesting that it. Com- I would compare it to it, but I would love to see this back to back with Abel Ferrara's Chelsea on the Rocks documentary from 2010. I don't know if you guys oh, know I that. I don't know that one. I mean, seen it. No, no. Needless to say, Abel Ferrara and Rowan Spong are probably very different filmmakers. Um, <laughs> very different humans. Yes, Mr. Ferrara is quite renowned for, <laughs> for his particular approach to filmmaking and, and the world. Um, Chelsea on the Rocks. I love Ferrara's documentaries. I love Ferrara's films, but Chelsea on the Rocks is about the Chelsea Hotel um, and and its move towards um, being basically be, being corporatised. So it's a, a real love letter to the Chelsea and this artistic community in the Chelsea. And he does a lot of interviews. Uh, Milos Forman is there at one point. Why not? Uh, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> Ethan Hawke is there. I mean, there's so it's a bit more celebrity whiz-bang. But, um, and, of course, Ferrara immerses himself very much in the middle of this story. But they are, I mean, I think that Winter at Westbeth and Chelsea on the Rocks, they are these New York artist community films it's not mm. just about one person even ferrara is like well it's about a community which is unusual i think for ferrara it's a gorgeous gorgeous film um rowan should you be listening well done, son. <laughs> it's, it's yeah it's, it's lovely I, I have enjoyed rowan's work for some time and he like you thomas actually he came to my attention through that uh, tears for teacher film way back when and anything dealing with transgender themes in a sensible way which was actually quite unusual at the time he made that film yeah you could almost say he's a bit ahead of the curve mm. kind of treating me and my people like i don't know human beings and <laughs> um, it's uh yeah so th- this is tremendously moving and some of the performance footage in it is it's just a, a priceless document, especially capturing some of one of the in particular. I, I, and I, I'm going to choke up if I talk too much about it I, also. Well, Edith, Edith, Edith Stevens' yeah. films, I found really, the, the, yeah. the archive footage of Edith Stevens from her sort of 60s, the happening when she's talking about the happenings and what she was doing with dance and film, I found really interesting. And even the contemporary performance stuff with um, Gilbert, with her, her poems being turned into operas or... Like, well, when really she reveals remarkable. her body of work, like yeah. quite the, the physical... That real evidence, Emily Dickinson yes. moment where Ooh. you realise that there's actually yeah. like an entire... Mm archive i mean this film it's been positioned at acme as part of their their seniors program and i i understand why they would do that but i hope this film goes out more broadly because it it does i think pay a lot of respect and remind us that people of that age um you know i think we live in a culture that often forgets or dismisses these people and trivializes their interests and creativity they become hobbyists it's almost like it's just to keep them busy and it's like no these were these were professionals yeah, and at this the top shows of their game and they yeah. kind of still yep. are. And, you know? yes, exactly, there's still yep. real vitality there. The spotlight maybe has moved, yes. but they're still doing amazing work. Working and they can artists. talk about this work with such fierce intelligence and passion. I mean, they're the real deal. These are, these are true artists who deserve our, our acclaim. And I, I just think this film... Yeah, so well pieced together. The, the choices it makes about when to cross-cut between the subjects, the choices it makes about when to show us archival footage and come back to, to contemporary, it just portrays this beautiful portrait of these three amazing people and, by extension, the broader community. I think the really strategic move it makes is to avoid being patronising, which is, I guess, where we're going with all of this. And I think it does that um, very, very specifically by not... by just letting these people speak. But, you know, there's not... 
people's um, you know answers to questions and things like that. They're they're really left to talk for themselves. They're not peop- you know words aren't crammed in their mouths. It's really impressive. You've been listening to Plato's Cave here on Three Triple R with myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Under the Shadow is screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Rialto Distribution. Chevalier is screening at Acme, courtesy of Vendetta Films, and Winter at Westbeth, which we were just discussing, is also screening at Acme, courtesy of Vendetta Films. Both Chevalier and Winter at Westbeth do have limited screening days and times, so go to acme.net.film forward slash... Sorry, I'll start that again. Go to acme.net.au forward slash film for more information. Coming up next, Local Andor General with Jason Moore, a man who does not need to jet ski. Good night. <laughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.